Let's take our Bibles standing together tonight, Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25. Appreciate the Sunday school teachers and your invitations to everybody in your class. Uh, um, the, uh, some of the other classes you didn't uh, have as many, but you invited and you worked hard and some of you uh, had 100%. And so maybe if we, uh, we do 100% or a percentage sometime, maybe you'll have a better chance. But uh, wonderful faithfulness that everybody's had tonight. Um, now I do want to ask, how many of you did get an invitation by one of your Sunday school teachers to come? They tried to call you or left a message on the phone or they saw you and said, be there or you're dead, something like that. Raise your hand real high. Okay, they did a good job, Pastor, all over the room. And uh, I see uh, those in all age groups. And uh, any of you guys get invited by, by Sunday school? Okay. You got, uh, you got uh, invited by the school. And uh, so we're all glad everybody's here. All right, now, tomorrow night, being the last night of the meeting, I want to encourage you, you be an evangelist, you be part of getting people under the Word of God. Uh, some of you have brought people to these meetings, and, and uh, some of you may even have visitors tonight. It may already be uh, in a good church and good standing and walking with the Lord. And, but you've brought people, and some of you have done that, and that's exciting. Now, uh, how many of you have been able to get already one person who normally doesn't come at least one service of the meeting? Somebody who doesn't normally come, you've been able to get them here. Just hold your hand up real high. Okay, we're not bragging, we're just grateful. So I'm just giving you an idea. We've, had, we've got some here tonight, I guess. So by the way, you're smiling. They must be visitors. Are they your friends? Right here? Yeah, yeah. Are these visitors? So they're visiting. Okay, your friends. Okay, so she has two friends. Okay, everybody, at least. She got more coming? All right. Well, very good. And thank you for being here. You uh, guests that are here are encouragement to her as she invited you, but your encouragement to the whole church. Isn't it great when someone invites somebody and they actually come? And uh, boy, what a blessing. And are there any other visitors that are here tonight that don't mind being introduced? If you brought somebody else, you're not ashamed of them. Would you raise your hand if you brought someone else that you want to introduce? Okay, over here. Uh, you brought some, oh, there's some guests over here, it looks like. Okay. All right. Well, they're looking down at the ground, so we won't embarrass them too much. We're just glad you're here. Thanks for coming. You guests over here, I guess. All right. But between today and tomorrow, will you pray for the meeting? If you will, say amen. amen. And then secondly, would you be willing to try to invite at least one person who normally doesn't come and specifically, try to invite somebody with a spiritual need and be a blessing. And see what God will do in that final service. All right, this evening, Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to read verse 46 as our text. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word, and we thank you, God, for your guidance, and we do pray, Heavenly Father, for your guidance tonight, and we pray, Lord, that we would do things your way and not our way. And we do ask you, Heavenly Father, to meet the needs this evening, and through the end of the week, there are things that still need to be done. So, God, guide 
and we thank you for your guidance. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you, and you can be seated. All right, just like I said, take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm, uh, I'm changing the text tonight, okay? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read Ephesians 4, verse 32. Yes, I was wrestling a little bit about which direction to go, but I feel like this is the direction that God has uh, prompted my heart with uh, and said, no, this is where you need to go. And I don't do that very often, but I uh, felt that, that maybe this is what I really should be doing. Is that okay? All right. Let's look at Ephesians 4 and verse 32. It says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. When my children were really little, they would write letters to me, and they would write, Daddy, I love you, and they would spell love, L-U-V. Now, if they were taking notes on the subject that I'm preaching on tonight, like bitterness and forgiveness, and if I were to say the word offense, they would misspell the word offense instead of spelling it, O-F-F-E-N, however you spell it, all right? They would probably make it two words, the first word being A and the second word being fence. And how appropriate that would be because when an offense comes up between two people, a fence goes up between two people. Does that make sense? And that fence goes up when there should be LUV. Now, the passage that we've read talks about one of the things that is the most misunderstood thing that there is sometimes. It's the word forgiveness. People say, I can forgive, but I can't forget. And then sometimes people say, well, you should forget. And then other times say, I'll never forgive somebody. And then sometimes people think forgiving somebody is just you have a good feeling. Now, there's a lot more to forgiveness than just liking somebody again. Now, the Bible teaches in this verse that everything that we learn about forgiveness is to be modeled after the way that God forgives us. Forgive one another how, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So just like God forgave you, the same way, in the same character of his forgiveness, that's the way and that's the fiber of our genuine Christian forgiveness. So we're going to look at forgiveness tonight, God's way. Now the first thing we're going to look at is the need for forgiveness. Now why do we need to forgive each other? We have to see then why first God has to forgive us. Now, the Bible teaches that every man in the world needs to get forgiveness for sins. That is including this preacher up here. And the reason that every man, woman, boy, and girl has to get forgiveness for our sin is that our sins have separated us from God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Death means separation. When a person dies physically, his body is separated from his soul. Death of a friendship, two people that are friends are not friends anymore. Death of a marriage, two people that are married are no longer married. They are now separated. So, death means separation. 
And if you've never been saved, the reason you need to be forgiven and saved is because all of us have sinned, and that includes you. And our sins will keep us separated from God, and we can never go to heaven until we get rid of those sins that separate us from God, honestly. Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. They were kicked out of the garden, and they no longer had fellowship with God. And God sent Jesus Christ, the Bible says in Romans 5.10, to reconcile man to God. And that is to bring two people that are separated together again. So Jesus can bring you through forgiveness from the place of hell to the place of heaven. And the only way you can ever get to heaven to be with God when you die is you've got to be forgiven. Because your sin separates you from God. Isaiah 59, 2. My sins at one time before I was forgiven separated me from God. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you. Now we need to forgive, get forgiveness from God because our sins separate us from each other, from, from God. But we need to give forgiveness for each other because when somebody does wrong to each other or to another, a fence goes up between two people that should have LUV. Husbands and wives are supposed to love each other, LUV. Brothers and sisters and children and parents and parents and children and church members and neighbors and friends. We're supposed to love each other, but when an offense comes, there's a separation between two people that needs to be restored, and the only way that it can be restored is if we follow what we are commanded to do, forgive each other, and then we can move forward as God would have us to do. That leads to the second point, number two, the command to forgive. God said, do it. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you, it is an, a command. Now, if we don't forgive each other for whatever our reasons might be, justified or unjustified, then we are disobedient to God. And it's not a matter of me as a preacher holding a thing over your head to try to back you into a corner. It's just me telling you the facts. In love, if you have someone that you are not right with or in a good relationship with, that you should be in a great relationship. And young people, you should be in a good relationship with your parents. And parents, you should be in a good relationship with your kids. When you've done them wrong, you need forgiveness. Husbands and wives, you should be close and closer to each other than any other human being. And there should not be one church member that is not at peace with another church member. And so this is a command from Jesus Christ, our master, and he expects us to carry it out. Now let's take our Bibles and let's turn over to Luke chapter 17. And in Luke 17, we are looking at a passage about forgiveness and it says why it's hard to forgive. Now how many of you have ever along with me felt it's a little bit hard to forgive sometimes? Okay, now... This passage deals with this. Um, let's look at verse 1. It says, Luke 17 and verse 1, 
He said unto his disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. Now, how many of you are married? Would you raise your hand? It's impossible to be married without there sometime being an offense. How many of you go to church somewhere? It's impossible for you to go to church without there being an offense sometime. And whether it be a church, a family, a place of business, a neighborhood, it's impossible for people to be together without offenses coming. That's the Word of God. But then we forgive and then we restore relationships. All right, back to Luke 17, beginning at verse 1. Then said he unto his disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. They're going to come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourself. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. If he repent, forgive him. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Now there was a woman in a church in West Virginia, and she was good friends with my family for a number of years. In fact, her daughter and my wife were like best friends. Well, her daughter got married and married this one guy. My wife got married and married me. Well, their marriage ended in a very ugly way. So as they were coming to the end of the marriage, I remember talking to her and her husband, and they were going to get reconciled. Now, the mother-in-law, who is a Christian, said to her daughter, if you get right and you go back to him, I will never forgive you. And so I said to her, what did you say to your daughter about not going back? She said, I'll never want her to go back to him. If she goes back to him, I will never forgive her. I said, you're a Christian woman. I know you love God. You ought to be encouraging them safely, cautiously, maybe with accountability, but to reconcile. She said, I'll never forgive him, and I'll never encourage her to do it. And I'll ask her, why? And she began to rattle her excuses, and you know what we're going to find? A lot of us have used the same ones. And it's almost like God knew her excuses in order and dealt with them in order by writing Luke 17 before she ever made her excuses. And God's Word has a way of doing that. Now, the first excuse she made, that is the first excuse maybe you make, is, I don't believe that he is sincere. Now, how many of you have ever had somebody say, I'm sorry for what I did? Please forgive me. But you don't really think they're sorry. I've had that happen. So here she said, well, I don't believe he's sincere. I think he's just going to get her back, and then he's going to mistreat her. He doesn't really care about her, or he cares about him. And I do not believe he's sincere. i got to see him sincere before I'll ever get behind this reconciliation. So I took her to the Bible, and I showed her verse 4. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day, turn again to thee, saying, I'll repent, thou shalt forgive him. Now it says, thou shalt not lie, it's a command. Thou shalt not steal, it's a command. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, it's a command. And those words, thou shalt, it's a command. 
And so it says that they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come to you in that same day and say, forgive me, you have to forgive them if you're going to be obedient to God. She said, well, that's not right. That's not sincere. I said, I don't know if it's right in man's estimation, but God's really the one who determines if it's right or not, and God says it's right because he's the one who put it in the Bible and told us to do it. Now, sometimes things happen, and it doesn't seem that somebody who hurts you and did you wrong is sincere. But God says, if they repent, you forgive them. Now, as an illustration, imagine you're standing next to somebody, and they make a fist. They look at you, and they go, and they pop you in the nose. So you go, why did you do that? He goes, I don't know. This arm's got a twitch. Sorry about that. Okay, but don't do it again. All right, I won't. Then a minute later, he looks over at you and he goes, and he pops you in the nose. You go, what are you doing? He said, I don't know. This arm's got a twitch. I can't control it. Sorry about that. <sighs> okay, but don't do it again. And then a minute later, he looks over and goes, boom. <laughs> Sorry about that. And a minute later, boom. <laughs> Sorry about that. And he does it seven times in about seven minutes. And he laughs as he says, Sorry about that. Will you forgive me? Now, question Is he likely sincere? No. But the Bible says, Thou shalt forgive him. Now, we all have had people do this where they do things that seem a little bit insincere, but they act like they're trying to make it right. God says you forgive them. That's what you do. Now, why would God say when somebody doesn't seem to be sincere and they hurt you, that you forgive them if they say, I repent? First of all, how many of you have ever been misunderstood by somebody? Would you raise your hand? Okay, if you've been misunderstood, is it possible that you could actually be misunderstanding them? Now, maybe not likely, seven punches in the nose is pretty clear. But let's say that maybe he does have a twitch, okay? So you've got to say, okay, I'll forgive you. Now, that sounds like they're going to get off the hook. But you've got to remember the whole passage, and I said this to my dear friend. It says something in verse 2. If they offend this child, it would be better for him to have a millstone hanged around his neck and to be cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Now, how many of you have ever heard of the mafia before? Now, the mafia used to take somebody that they didn't like and they would put their feet into a bucket of wet cement. The cement would harden and then they would take that bucket of cement over to a bridge and they would just throw the bucket of cement over the bridge down into the river. The problem is that somebody's feet were caught in there, thus the person was brought down to the bottom river and drowned. Now, execution mafia style. Now, what God is saying in this passage is if somebody hurts you and they kept hurting you and they asked you to forgive them and you forgive them and they hurt you again, you forgive them if they ask you to forgive them. And let me take care of it if they do you wrong. And God says, I will notice, I will notice. And in time, now you say, well, you didn't do it. Well, he says seven times in a day. And another passage, 70 times seven. But he says, vengeance is mine. And he adds this, 
I will repay. Not I might. And so if something needs to be done, you let God take care of it, and God can execute them mafia style if he so chooses, with a millstone hung around his neck and cast into the sea. And so here's what I'm saying. God says, you let it go. I will take care of it if something has to be done. Now, another reason that you've got to let it go, God's way forgive is what I'm saying, is because you don't need to become a person that is totally bitter. Because bitterness is a cancer that will ruin your life. I have a very dear, dear friend. And he is one of the best bus workers that I know in the United States of America. And one day I said to him, how long have you been a bus worker? Because I was expecting that he'd been a bus worker for about 30 years, as I am about the same age, and I've been in the ministry at that time for 30 years. He said, oh, about five years. I said, five years? You're so good at this. I figured you'd been doing bus work for 30 years. He said, no, Mike, be honest with you. There was about a 20-year period that I didn't go to church. I said, really? Why? He said, I got bitter at what somebody said or did. And you know what he said? I missed 20 years of blessing because I allowed myself to get bitter. Now, you do not want to get bitter over anything because it will be a cancer that will destroy your life and make you miss out on a lot of joy. Now, the first excuse she said was, I cannot forgive him, he's not sincere. The second excuse she said was, 70 times 7, I'm not a good enough Christian to do that. And she said, you're a preacher, Mike, so as a preacher you should be able to do that, but I can't do that. I just am not a good enough Christian. Now when we say this, it's going to be a hard thing. It's going to be too hard for me. I can never forgive that dad for what he did, that mom for what she did, that spouse for what she did. I could never forgive that teacher or whoever it might be. I just don't have it in me. Now, as she said, it's not in me. I cannot forgive. I said to her, it's not you can't. I'm not being mean. It's you won't. And then I showed her this passage. Just as she said this, I came to this in my mind. Look at verse 5. It's like God answered her excuses right in a row. And the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Now, you know what they're saying? They're saying, you tell me to forgive somebody over and over and over and over. I'm not a good enough Christian to do that. That's in essence what they're saying. Increase our faith. Now, notice what God says next to that in verse 6. The Lord said, if ye had faith as the grain of a mustard seed, ye might say to the skimming tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. Now usually we'll use this verse and we'll say, If you have faith and you pray, you can move a mountain. You can move a tree. And it is true that God can do anything. And when we have faith and when we pray... God moves. But this particular passage is not talking about answers to prayer. 
It is talking about forgiving people. And so the context is simply saying this. You tell me you don't have enough faith. You're not a good enough Christian to forgive. If you had the grain of a mustard seed faith, you could move a tree. And he's basically saying, you've got at least enough faith to forgive. And if you have enough faith to move a tree, then certainly as a Christian, you've got enough grace and faith in you to be able to forgive when God said do it and it'll work out better. Now, it's not an issue, folks, that we can't forgive the dad, the mom, that individual. It's a matter of we won't. And if we don't, there'll be division where God wants love. If we don't, there will be cancers that destroy the souls of men inwardly. And if we don't, it will affect our relationship with God because we're disobedient. And if we are disobedient, it affects many other things in the revival and that one that we seek. Now, the third excuse she gave was she said, well, I'll be honest with you. I just don't feel like forgiving him. Now, here we're getting somewhere. How many of you have ever felt like you just didn't want to forgive somebody? I have felt that way myself. I had one guy that did something to me, and I was driving home, and I was so angry. I was very young. I was in my 20s, and I prayed, God, kill him. And as soon as I did that, my tire blew up. I'm not exaggerating. And I got a flat tire. And I repented right away, and I said, God, bless his life. God, don't kill him. Help his family. I'm sorry for my attitude. And I said, but please help him to see where he was wrong. And I don't think there was anything wrong with adding that. But I'm saying, she finally got to the place where she honestly told us what was the problem. She said, I don't feel like forgiving him. Now, we're spending a little time on this, but we've got to move on. But let me do this quickly. Look at verse 7. Which of you having a servant plowing in the field will say to him by and by when he is in the field, go and sit down to me? And will not rather say to him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, gird thyself, and serve me, till after I have eaten and drunken, and afterwards thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank his servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. Now imagine that you are a servant, or we could say a slave. Now there is a master who is running your life. And the master has you out in the field all day working, and you're working for his benefit. And after our day's work, you had nothing to eat. You go inside the house, and now you finally get some rest, and the master sitting there says, Servant, come here. So you go there. He says, Go in the kitchen. Cook me some supper. Don't you eat anything until you feed me first. Now you go in the kitchen, and everything in you says, forget that guy. He's been inside all day resting, and I've been out sweating, and he doesn't even care. I do this for him every day. I've done it for him all these months, and he still doesn't appreciate anything. And you're thinking, forget him. I'm just going to eat something real fast, and he won't even know, and then I'm going to feed him. Now, the tendency would say, I just don't want to do what he wants. I'm going to do what I want to do. But if you're the right kind of servant, I'm just saying the right kind, you do what you're told. You go against the way you feel. You go against 
the way you feel, and you do what you're told. And we, to forgive people in order to fix these relationships, have got to go against the way we feel, swallow our pride, and do what we are told. And how many believe that if you do what God tells you to do, it will end well for you? If we go against what God tells us to do, it will not end well for us. Now let me just add very briefly. Forgive one another as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now when Jesus was on the cross, and we forgive each other like he told us to forgive each other, and we are to do it like Jesus forgave, then everything we think about and run through our minds when we're forgiving people is modeled after what Jesus did and how he forgave and how he does it even now. No matter how many times we sin, how badly we sin, he is there to forgive if we ask. Now here he is on the cross. People just beat him with the cat of nine tails, spit in his face, pulled his beard out, fed him vinegar to drink, and they mocked him, plummeted him in the eyes. His eyes are swollen, his face is emaciated, the blood is strickling down the side of his face, his head is throbbing because of the thorns and getting hit on the head with the stick to drive it into his skull. And his back is bleeding and in pain and his nails are hurting him and his nails hurting his feet and his legs are out of joint and his elbows and shoulders are out of joint. And as he's on that cross, he goes, Father! And what does he say? Father, kill them! No, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, do you know what? First of all, they did know what they did. They knew they were putting nails in his hands. They knew that they were beating him on the head. They knew that they were pulling his bones out of joints, spitting in his face, ripping his beard off. They sure knew what they did. They knew what they were doing, and they were mocking him. What does he mean? They know not what they do. He meant, even though they know what they were doing was horrible, they didn't realize how horrible it really was. Nobody wants to be scum. And somehow they justified in their mind, there's a just reason, and it's okay to do what I'm doing for this reason. Now, that's what he meant. They don't know what they do. But here he said, Father, forgive them. Now, here's the thing, though. Technically, you cannot forgive somebody until one thing happens. All right, take a look at verse 4, Luke 17. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Now, technically, you cannot forgive somebody like God forgives until they ask for you to forgive them. For instance, did everybody who was crucifying Jesus that day, and he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do, did everyone who crucified him that day and participated in his crucifixion and mocking, did every one of them then go to heaven when they died because God said, Father, forgive them? No. Only the ones who ask for his forgiveness. So if you have never been saved, he is here to save everybody, but you have to ask him for it. And he'll forgive you. If you don't ask him, he can't forgive you. You've got to ask him for your salvation. 
But then, we cannot technically forgive somebody, I don't think, and I may be wrong in this, but this is how I see it. I've been wrong before, but this is how I see it. We cannot technically forgive somebody fully until they ask us to forgive them. Well, here's what we can do. We can have the spirit of forgiving them, like Jesus did on the cross. Instead of, God, I hate him. I want him dead. I want him killed. I want him hurt. I want him suffering. Instead of that, we go, God, forgive him. And help us, Lord, to get this right. Now, First of all, we look at the need to forgive. Secondly, we look at the command to forgive. God said, do it. Thirdly, I want to look at the pattern for forgiveness. It is God. Forgive each other as God forgave you. So now we've got to take a look at something briefly. How did God forgive us? Now, somebody said that statement, and maybe you've heard preachers preach on it, but here's why. It's biblical. We say, you've got to forgive somebody. And they'll say, well, I can forgive, but I can't forget. How many of you have ever heard that statement? And we'll follow through with, no, you got to forgive and forget. And you know what? The Bible teaches something different, I believe. There are some things we cannot forget, but we can forgive. My dad put a 12-gauge shotgun in his mouth when I was a six-year-old boy. He pulled the trigger. He blew off the back of his head. I'm sorry. I'm 57. But if I live to be 107, I'll never forget my dad's body on the ground. I never will forget what dad did, but I can forgive what dad did. Have the spirit of it at least. See? Now, if somebody punches you in the nose seven times, and somebody comes up and says, what happened to you? You can't say, I don't remember. Unless they hit you so hard in the nose that your nose is swollen and you can't remember anything. But the idea is there's some things you cannot forget. Now, look at what God does. Does God forget anything? Technically, the Bible says, I will forgive your iniquity. I will remember your sin no more. Now, I read a book on this. It might be splitting ears, but I do believe there's something to it. God does not forget anything. God chooses to remember no more. And the difference is simply this. To forget something, all that is is a casual slip of the mind. Like, I go to the store to get my wife's eggs and milk. I'm driving to the store. I got two things, and I'm trying to remember them. Eggs and milk. Eggs, eggs, and milk. Eggs. And milk. I'm going to be a good husband. Eggs, eggs, and milk. I got this. And I'm driving with eggs and milk on my mind. And then I see some kind of sports car. And I go, whoa, hey, check that out. Man, wish I could drive that thing. Man, it reminds me when I drove that car, I went 110 miles per hour on the interstate for only just a little bit. But that was so awesome. And then, then I go back now. What was that that I was supposed to get? Eggs, eggs eggs. And then I call my wife up and I say, Becky, what was that that I was supposed to get? Eggs and milk. Two things. All I want. Eggs and milk. Don't you love me? Yes, I love you. I'm a man. I forgot. Now, all you have to do to forget something is to be a man. It's a casual slip of the mind. But here is what remembering no more is. Remembering is simply this. I'm not going to bring it up again in a negative way. 
to let it be between us. Now, God doesn't forget. You say He cast the sins behind His back. Yes, but I'm looking at you, but I haven't forgotten that the choir loft's behind me. And if you cast a sin down to the depths of the sea, God has not forgotten me. He's in the depths of the sea. He's everywhere. And He's perfectly aware of everything. But what God has done is because of His love and our asking for forgiveness and His heart to forgive, He remembers them no more. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember them no more. Isaiah 43, 25, Jeremiah 31, 34. Now, to remember no more is simply a promise. I'm not going to bring it up in a negative way, and I'm not going to bring it up negatively and let this come between us. I'm not going to bring it up in a negative way to you anymore, a negative way to other people and talk badly about you because of what you did. I'm not going to go spreading gossip all over the church about, do you know he thinks he saw this? Do you know that she did this to me in the Christian school? And here we're not going to bring it up negatively to ourselves. I went into a post office and was delivering some mail, and the lady behind the counter saw my name tag, said Evangelist Mike Pelletier. She goes, oh, you're an evangelist, huh? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, I guess I can trust you. And then she started to cry. Now, what do you do when your strange woman you've never met starts to cry, and she just said, I can trust you? I just kind of waited to see what was happening, and then she didn't do anything but cry. So I said, ma'am, what's wrong? And she said, my husband. So I put two plus two together, and I knew it spelled adultery. So I said, ma'am, has your husband had an affair on you? Yes. And I very quickly said to her, not trying to make light of the sin, just because your husband had an affair doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It might be in a moment of weakness he went in and gave in to the sin. Now, did he say that he is sorry and that he's left that relationship? Yes, he said it, but how do I know I can trust him? I don't blame her for having a hard time trusting him, do you? So then I said, look, you don't know me, but I think I could help you. Would you be willing to meet with me at the church where I'm preaching, and I think I could help you to forgive your husband? So somehow she agreed. So she met with me, and I explained to her about biblical forgiveness modeled after God. You don't always forget it, but you can forgive it. And it is remember it no more, not you can't remember it. You choose to not bring it up again in a negative way to three people. One, yourself. Do you sit there hating him? Yes, I do. I hate him for what he did. Do you think about it a lot? Yes, I do. He knows you do that. And it makes it harder to reconcile. I said, so do you talk to others about it? She said, I do. The people that cut my hair, I talk about it with them. And then I said, do you, do you remind him about it? I ask him all the time, are you still cheating on me? And I said, you know what's happening is that you keep bringing it up, 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 and he's having a hard time moving on, and your relationship cannot get fixed until you forgive. And I said then, you cannot have the power in you to forgive unless you've got the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus in you. And so I told her she needs to be saved, and I led her to Jesus Christ. It ended beautifully. Now, that night, I got up to preach. I saw halfway through the service, before I got up to preach, 
this woman walked in, went into the back room with a glass mirror, a window, where they would nurse the babies. But no one was in there, so she just slipped in there, and her husband slipped in there with her. And they watched me. I could see them. I didn't know that was her husband, but I guessed it was. Now, when it was done, she and her husband walked up toward me immediately after the service, and he shook his hand out, and he shook my hand, and he said, Sir, I don't know what you told my wife, but thank you. I think she finally forgave me. I said, Really? Let me tell you what I told her. And I took him in another room, and I told him about biblical forgiveness, and I led him to Jesus Christ. And I talked to him about it, and I said, did she ever bring it up? I said, what happened tonight? Why are you here? He said, I went home tonight, and I was a little bit late getting home, and usually if I'm late getting home, my wife is standing there looking at the door with an accusatory look and a scowl on her face. And she's looking at me like, you doing it again? You doing it again? And I walked by. I knew I was going to get it. And I just walked in. I just was late. And she wasn't yelling. She wasn't scowling. She wasn't pushing. She wasn't pushing my buttons. She wasn't asking, did I do it? So I stopped and I looked at her and she had this peace on her face. And I said, what happened to you? And she said, I think I finally forgave you. I met a man who told me how to forgive you, and I think I finally forgave you. And he looked at her again, and he looked at her eyes, and her face said, I think you have. Who is this guy? I want to meet him. And it's not me, but that's why I came to the meeting, because he heard what the Bible said, and it got fixed. Now, follow me. There is not a relationship that can't get fixed at least in some measure. Even if there's been a divorce, even if there's been remarriage, there can at least be cordiality and not hate. In a church, no matter how bad it's been, there can be a relationship fixed. And I'm telling you, it's not that we won't, can't, it's that we won't. Now, number one, the need to forgive. Number two, the command to forgive. Number three, the pattern, it's God. You can't forget, but you can say, I'm not going to let this come between us. And we're going to go on and have L-U-V. Now let's close by looking at the purpose of forgiveness. All right, here's the purpose of forgiveness. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And in Romans 5, I'm going to read verse 10. It says that God sent Christ for a purpose to come to this earth. Romans chapter 5, for in that he died, uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, it says, for if we, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. My father-in-law, Ron Comfort, tells the story, may have told it here. There was an elderly man, had two sons that were adults, that had gotten bitter toward each other, wouldn't talk to each other. He was on his deathbed, and on his deathbed, he wanted nothing more than to have his two adult sons get together and live together, when, get along when he's gone. So on his deathbed, he reached over, and he took the hand of one of the brothers, put it on his chest, reached over, took the hand of the other brother, put it on his brother's hand, he put his two hands over theirs, and he held those brothers' hands together, made them hold hands, until he died. 
Now, when the man died, that moment, those two adult sons lifted up their eyes, looked at each other, and that's all it took. They made eye contact, and they went to the end of the bed. They embraced each other, and they reconciled their relationship. And he gives this as an application. It took a dying dad to bring two adult sons that were separated back together again. And when Jesus died on the cross, he reached up and he took the hand of the Father, and he reached down and he took the hand of us sinful people, and he brought us back together again. Reconciliation. Now, everything we do is to be modeled after God, so what is the purpose of God forgiving us? So we could be reconciled with God. So what is the purpose of forgiving and getting forgiveness? So we can be reconciled with our parents, not just tolerating them. Reconciled with people in the church. Reconciled with those who did us wrong. If they repent, we can be reconciled with them. Reconciled with classmates. Reconciled with neighbors. Reconciled with church members. Reconciled with former church members. And we can do what God said we should be doing. We should be some people that men will know that we are his disciples because of our love. Now the Bible says the purpose of forgiveness is to reconcile, and that would be man with man. Turn to Matthew 5.24. Matthew 5.24. We're moving toward the end. Matthew 5.24. Verse 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, there rememberest that thy brother hath thought against thee. Leave there the gift before the altar. Go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come unto me and offer thy gifts. All right, that is point two, man with God. So I gave you the wrong reference, but that is man with God. Remember that, we'll reference that again. So this is, if you go to the altar and church, and you're going to offer something to God, or you're going to worship God, and you know there's somebody that you are not right with, they are offended with you, you have not tried to make it right. God says you go to them and you reconcile with them and then come to me. In other words, until you try to make it right, I am not going to receive you, your worship. So how many times have we talked about hindrances to revival? This is what it is, bitterness. I heard one preacher say, adultery has slain its thousands, but bitterness has slain its tens of thousands. I asked my former pastor, what should I preach on revival meetings? And he very rapidly said, bitterness. He said, I have been on the phone with 10 pastors who have had church splits this week. And bitterness is killing us, and it's robbing us of the blessings of God. Now, Man with God, we'll get to that, but man with man. All right, now let's look at Matthew 18, 15. It says, Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. So the purpose of getting somebody to listen to you and to get things right with them, we're about to wrap this up, it is to fix the relationship and gain the brother back. Now, is there anybody in church that you have a wall between? Is there anyone that you've got a wall within your family? God 
in revival says you've got to get the iniquity out of your heart and bitterness is iniquity and it's in your heart. And God says we've got to reconcile this this way if we're going to be right with him this way. And he's telling us the purpose of forgiving is not just to say I forgive you, but I forget about you. I don't want anything to do with you. The purpose is to build a better relationship than you had before the sin happened. My mother used to have a garden, and when I was a kid, she would come out, she'd say, we're going to do the garden, kids. There were five of us. It'll be great, she'd say, and we'd be going, oh, oh, because we knew it was a lot of work. She'd say, come on, I'll help you. So we'd go out there in like a quarter acre, which I found out later was about 10 feet by 10 feet, but it seemed really big. And my mom would say, okay, we're going to get started. First thing we're going to do is we're going to do cultivate the garden. So it was really hard. We didn't have a gas-powered cultivator. We had a kid-powered cultivator. So that was the kind that had six hooks and a little wheel, and you push it, and you turn the dirt over. Well, I was too little to do it, so my mom helped me. I'd get on it. She'd get behind me with a whip, and she'd go, <laughs> she'd hit me in the back, and I'd go, Ugh. thanks, Mom. She'd hit me again. I'd go, Ugh. thanks, Mom. And eventually, I'd get through. Now, after we were done, I'm a little exaggerating, okay? But after I would get done, then she'd say, now, let's hold the garden and break up all the clods. So we'd hold the garden and break up all the clods. Then she still wasn't happy. Then she'd say, now, let's rake up all the weeds and put them in a pile. And so we'd rake up all the weeds. We'd put them in a pile, throw them over the fence in the neighbor's yard. And then she'd say, now, let's cultivate it again and get behind it again thanks mom hold again and then get all the remaining weeds out and we'd throw them over and there would be in the end about four inches of nice soft black illinois dirt without weeds at all and without clods now after we were done two rounds of cultivating two rounds of hoeing two rounds of getting all the weeds out two rounds of raking she still wasn't satisfied. And you know what she wanted us to do then? She wanted us to bore a little burrow and put new seed in. Cover it up. Water it. And plant new seed and have good things grow. Now when we forgive each other, you get right with your parents if you'll do that. You get right with your wife if you'll do that. It's not done. What God wants is you to build a better relationship than you ever had before the problem ever happened. That's God's forgiveness. Now, man with man, to fix the relationship, is there anybody that you're not right with? If there's one here that's not right with somebody, the fact that I was going to preach something else and switch to this, Believing that God has led me, I hope, I believe, means that God may have this whole message for you. And you need to act upon it. Man with man, and then man with God. I was preaching in Pennsylvania, and I closed with this. I hear people say all the time that bitterness affects revival. 
I say amen, amen. But I saw one hand firsthand, preaching in Pennsylvania. The place was filled every night. I don't know, 200 people. And there were several unsaved people each night, lots of visitors. And I can remember thinking, Lord, lots of unsaved, please save souls. And I would preach my heart out, I'm not making this up, nobody would get saved. I thought I had liberty, nobody would get saved. And so then, God, please bless the meeting. More people are here that are unsaved. And Lord, help us to see them saved. I preached on Monday night, and I had liberty, and I preached on heaven and hell, and I felt like God was moving. Not one person got saved. Tuesday night came. All these unsaved, I again preach. And there are all these unsaved people, and nobody's getting saved, and I'm going, what is going on here? So then, on Wednesday night, I was going to preach. And just like I did tonight, I didn't do it in the pulpit, but I did it in the pew right over there where I was sitting. I changed my message. It's like God said, even though they're unsaved people, you need to preach on bitterness. There might be bitterness here. So I'm preaching, and I preach on bitterness. And as I'm preaching, my whole purpose is I want to see people saved and something's wrong. And so I preach on bitterness, and then my devotions came out in my preaching, which sometimes happens. I had had them in... Korah and the rebellion of Korah, how Korah went to Moses and said, Moses, you think you're the only Levi? We're descendants of Levi. You take too much on you. And this fellow Aaron, who is he? We're just as spiritual as you guys, and we're descendants of Levi. Who are you to tell us what to do? And Moses got down and he said, God will tell us who it's supposed to be, that he wants to lead whoever he wants. And he says, we'll ask God, and God will tell us tomorrow who he wants to be the leader of Israel. So Moses he just did that humbly, and God showed up, and he said, I'll tell you who I want. I set up Moses, I set up Aaron, and I'm going to show you what I think about this rebellion. He opened up the earth, and he swallowed Korah and his 200 rebels into hell. And he closed the earth and swallowed them alive into hell. That's what God thinks about rebellion. And some of you better be careful or God might open the earth and swallow you into hell. I doubt he'll do it, but he did it before. That's how serious he is about rebellion. If you got it, you're a candidate for God's judgment at least. You better change it. But I will say this. I preach, and I said, and God opened up the earth and he swallowed them into hell. And then I went on and I preached what I was going to preach. Well, at the invitation, I'd preach my heart out. I was sweating. I was doing this. I was going like this, and I was preaching like this. I put my heart, soul, and body into the preaching because I felt it was that important. And do you know, at the invitation, how many people out of 200 people responded down that invitation? God was moving one. You know who that one was? An elderly woman, a Sunday school teacher, one of the dearest, sweetest ladies in the church from my perspective. And I was very disappointed. I thought, why is it that the godliest people are the only ones who ever walk an aisle? And I was discouraged. So then when I was done, pastor had asked me to go to his house to get something to eat afterwards, and that's what pastors do, we eat. So I went to his house, and I was going to get something just to fellowship with him. And he's in his 70s or so, late 70s, and he didn't have good health. So I go in, 
And I said, where's Pastor? Oh, he's in the kitchen. So I walk around to meet him, and I'm going to the kitchen just to see Pastor, and I see him sitting by the table by himself there, and he's just shaking in his seat. And I said, Pastor, are you okay? And he looks at me, and he says, do you know what you did? I said, oh, no, what did I do in my mind? I said, no, what did I do? He said, that woman. I said, what woman? That woman who walked down the aisle. I said, yeah, why is it that the godliest people are the only ones who ever walk down the aisle? And he said, quote, unquote, that woman is the biggest complainer in my church. And he said, last week, listen to this. She pointed her finger in my face and she said, you think you're Moses. You think your assistant over here is Aaron. Well, you're not the only two spiritual people in this church. We've been saved a long time, too. And when I preached, and God led me to say what I never said before about Moses and Aaron and God opening up, she thought God was going to open up the earth and swallow her into hell if she didn't get right. And she came down there, got on her knees, and she got right with God. And let me tell you what happened. The next day, we had five people saved. And you know what I'm telling you? Even if you're the sweetest woman in the church, and she was a sweet woman, you can be a bitter woman in a secret place in your heart. And when we keep saying, what is wrong? Why aren't we growing? What is wrong? Maybe this is it that is wrong. And if we will deal with any bitterness... Maybe we go into a season of refreshing. Let's bow our heads.